You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, y'all, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, I can see that... um, Everyone's very excited about talking about church discipline this morning, uh, judging by the numbers out there. Uh, but uh, it's where we are uh, in the uh, series on the articles, and um, uh, glad uh, that you are here. And I hope that, that we can have an open conversation w- with one another this morning, because uh, quite frankly, I need your help uh, on this one. And um, so let's, uh, let's talk about it. And David, you're, you're welcome to come get your Coke uh, anytime uh, you want. As Job, as Job. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the gift of your church. And Lord, it's sometimes very difficult to love one another, much less live together. And so, Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would show us how. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you have before you uh, the two things in the prayer book uh, around the issue of excommunication uh, or church discipline. Uh, So let me read the uh, article for us. That person, which by open denunciation of the church is rightly cut off from the unity of the church and excommunicated, ought to be taken of the whole multitude of the faithful as a heathen and publican until he openly uh, be openly reconciled by penance and received into the church by a judge that hath authority thereunto. Uh, I read this every night to my children before they go to bed. Uh, uh, no. Uh, thanks, Gary. Um, okay, so there's some historical background. One of the things, as much as we like the articles and as much as we see them as a confession uh, of our doctrinal positions, uh, they still are a product of 16th century England. And you see that, especially in the last couple words, by a judge that hath authority thereunto. Uh, because until... Um, The past couple hundred years, especially at the time of the Reformation, but even uh, a good while after that, the church actually had authority in matters like this. I mentioned last week, uh, or maybe the week before, that uh, there were no birth certificates in England. You had a baptismal certificate. So the church actually was responsible for registering births. If you died, it was put in the parish register. There was no certificate of death that you have to present to the airline to get the discount. Uh, There's none of that stuff. You'd have to take the parish register with you. Uh, And actually, uh, there were a whole system of ecclesiastical courts that decided various and sundry matters, everything from how you ordered your Sunday gatherings. So, for instance, uh, you could go to jail in England until the 1960s for wearing Eucharistic vestments. So, like, you know, the flowing giant pillowcase-looking thing that your grandmother might upholster her sofa with, that that will get you sent to jail in England until 1963. So there were courts that determined that, but they also determined issues of excommunication, where you would bring up somebody who was uh, considered a heathen and publican uh, before the court. And the way that it would work is that the priest, the rector, would say, I'm excommunicating this person, Uh, which means I'm barring them from the table and cutting them off from the fellowship of the church. Because in the Church of England, um, we take it for granted, and I felt this mightily this morning, uh, we take communion a lot. 
where most people in the Church of England until the 20th century only took communion a couple times a year and were completely satisfied by it. They took it at Easter, they took it at Christmas, and maybe one other time. Uh, in fact, there are some very amusing stories in the late 1800s uh, of a rector who came to his parish and he was in a little village and there were only about 50 people uh, there on a Sunday uh, and he noticed that only about 10 of them came forward for communion. And he began to converse with those in, that were coming forward for communion as to how they might encourage the rest of the, the attendees to come to the Lord's table. And it turned out that five of the 10 had actually been paid by the last rector to come to the table and were insistent on the new rector paying them as well. And when he refused, it went down to five people communicating on a Sunday out of the now 45 who were there. So, um, uh, and for various and sundry reasons, this same rector, who's a lot of fun to read, wrote in his diary that once he finally did get people coming to communion, he said as he handed the, the chalice of wine to one person, uh, a sort of salt-of-the-earth guy, he took the chalice, raised it, and said, here's to Jesus. Um, so saying you can't come to the table was not that big a deal. He skipped Christmas and Easter, right? Um, but it was more putting them outside of the fellowship of the church. And this was a really big deal. And it really required uh, something uh, great. This practice has uh, largely fallen out of disuse for multiple reasons, which we'll talk about, uh, but still exists. So if you look at the bottom of your sheet, you'll see a little thing with the heading that says disciplinary rubrics. And it says, uh, and let me just read it. If the priest that knows that a person who is living a notoriously evil life intends to come to communion, the priest shall speak to that person privately and tell him that he, her, that she, may not come to the communion table until they have given clear proof of repentance and amendment of life. The priest shall follow the same procedure with those who have done the wrong to their neighbors and are a scandal to the other members of the congregation, not allowing such persons to receive communion until they have made restitution for the wrong they have done or have at least promised to do so. When the priest sees that there is hatred between members of the congregation, this is probably the most pertinent, he shall speak privately to each of them, telling them that they may not receive communion until they have forgiven each other. And if the person or persons on one side truly forgive the others and desire and promise to make up for their faults, but those on the other side refuse to forgive, the priest shall allow those who are penitent to come to the table or communion, uh, but not those who are stubborn. In all such cases, the priest is required to notify the bishop within 14 days at the most, giving the reasons for ref refusing communion. The word of the Lord. Just kidding. Um, kind of like that. Okay. Well, why would you do this? The reasons are listed here, and they're not completely arbitrary, but let's look at some Bible passages that can help us. I'm just going to look at three today, and then we can have a bit of a conversation. The first one is Matthew chapter 18, beginning with the 15th verse. If your brother sins against you, this is Jesus speaking, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen then or listen to them, tell it to the whole church. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with the first verse. 
It is actually reported that there is sexually, sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. These are the readings that never make it in the lectionary for some reason. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. This is Paul speaking. And as, and as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then 2 John uh, verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is the gospel, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, this is the word of the Lord. I know it's kind of hard to say, thanks. You know, there are sometimes every once in a while we get a gospel reading that's particularly hard, and the reader says, the gospel of the Lord, and you're like, maybe, maybe. It's a stretch if I squint my eyes, kind of. Um, okay. So the disciplinary rubrics and the scriptures here are in complete agreement. Why would you ever tell somebody you may not come to the table and, you have, and you're, you're out of fellowship with us? One is that they've done something really dastardly. Let your mind wander. I, I mean, it could be uh, honestly anything. Uh, but if they're coming to the table, even being present in the midst of the fellowship, if it's going to cause huge disruption, that's a problem, right? That's, that's a pretty significant problem. So it's, uh, let's just work through it. So one, it's about the body. It's about the body. And one person coming forward to the table might actually keep everybody else from coming to the table. And if that's the case, the worst thing you can do is look the other way. It's a little bit like being a grade school teacher. Inevitably, you have one person that's a problem in the classroom. And if you spend all of your time accommodating the problem, who suffers? The entire class. And so there is a point at which... You have to put them out and say, you either get on board or you get out. Now, to Westerners, this is foreign. This is completely and totally foreign. In places like Africa or Asia, the Middle East, this is pretty typical because the idea of community always trumps individual preference. And in our culture, individual preference is king. It just, it just is. One of the funny things that I'll notice about foreigners, who are so excitable, uh, when they come to the United States, is you know what they always tell me they're overwhelmed with? Restaurant menus. They're like, you have too many choices. Too many choices. And it's just like, give me a break. Just pick something. Uh, but, but for them to have that much put on them as an individual choice is a lot and is unusual uh, for them. I mean, if they, one, they don't go out to eat a lot. And if you go over to somebody's house, what do you do? You get what you get, you don't pitch a fit, as we tell our kids. And so, for the sake of the body, they don't, they don't come forward. But also for the sake of the individual. Uh, 
1, uh, and you can uh, read uh, from 1 Corinthians. Well, let me just do that better than... I'm going to do it real quick. Uh, 1 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper in um, chapter 11, um, uh, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Okay, so what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about the individual who's not discerning the body, which most people will immediately latch on to and say, well, what they're talking about is, is the body of Christ, the Holy Communion. It's not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is talking about is the body, his church. Without discerning the body, without understanding that you don't come forward as an individual. I mean, you do in some sense, absolutely. But it's not an individual meal. It's not the awkward feeling of eating on an airplane. You know, you're as close to them more so than you are even your own family members when you eat. And yet, you just kind of... It's weird, isn't it, if you've ever eaten on an airplane? It's very strange. And some of us treat communion like that. You come forward and you kneel and you are literally touching the person next to you. Uh, You have no idea who they are. You don't want to know who they are. Uh, And it's just you and Jesus and you're there to receive. Obviously, you're coming forward as an individual, but you're coming forward uh, as a body. And so for the individual to think it's just about me is wrong. So what does this mean when you visit another church? Does that mean you should never go forward? No. Not at all, especially if you have a semblance of understanding about the church and they're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course you should come forward and receive uh, with them. Uh, But if there's ever a moment, uh, and this more often than not happens in your own congregation, where you are on the outs with a brother or sister within the congregation, your coming to the table actually makes a mockery of the table and you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. And it's no small thing. So the way that I've typically handled this is in the spirit of Matthew 18, in the spirit of 1 Corinthians 5, in the spirit of 2 John, and it never works. Um, So when there is an issue in the congregation, uh, I have gone to them one-on-one and said, we've got a problem here. And the reason why Jesus continues to go on, why, is because it never works. So what I then have to do is to grab somebody, and normally I get somebody who knows the person very well, but is somehow removed from the situation, who might actually be able to talk some sense into them. Now, a situation that we're talking about, and I'll give you a real-life example. When I was in Beaufort, uh, and I've used this time and time again, and everybody's reconciled, so I can talk about it. There, were, there was a group of parishioners that had owned some property and there was a real, two real estate agents in the congregation. And needless to say, something happened, and the real estate agents were perceived as taking advantage of the landowners and putting, at the, putting the landowners at a great disadvantage. 
And so when they would come forward to communion, regardless of the two lines that they formed coming up to the table, if they saw someone from the other party in their line, they'd switch lines. Uh, now, the, it's a colonial church. So the rail is less than 20 feet across. So you're really not making out. I mean, it's, but they thought, so long as I'm on the other side of the rail, it's fine. Well, people were beginning to see this, and everybody knew what was going on. And so we got everybody together and said, y'all got to sort it out. And until you sort it out, don't come to the communion rail. Now, some of them were really miffed. And, and some said, well, what if we go to the early service and they go to that service? Like, I mean, y'all are a bunch of, like a bunch of sea lawyers. And everybody's looking for a catch because nobody wants to deal with the issue at hand. And yet those seeds were germinating and it was getting ugly. And other parishioners were beginning to take sides. So, but in the case of you go to an individual who has done something, whether that you hear that they've done something to somebody in the congregation or they themselves are acting out in the congregation in a certain way. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, you know, I, I hear that you're being unkind to a particular parishioner. And there's no reason, for, and, I've, and I've looked into it, and it seems that you are being particularly unkind. Um, tell me about that. And if they are basically defiant and they say, well, the problem really is them, uh, and they're not willing to at least deal with the situation or even to say, oh, my goodness, I didn't even know that I had offended them. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'll get somebody else uh, to go with me and to talk to them. And here's typically where it breaks down. Because how many times have you ever seen uh, someone brought up before the congregation and said, now here's this person, and here's what they've done, and they need to be reconciled to the body. Because that's also a point. Why are we doing this? Are we doing this to preserve the sanctity of the table? Actually, no. The disciplinary rubrics in the Bible say the reason why we do this is actually for the sake of the individual. Right? In fact, the, uh, the exhortation from the prayer book. There's an exhortation that you can read before the communion service that basically warns people who come to the table unworthily. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, gosh, I don't know when I've ever received worthily. I'm a sinner. You're exactly who we want at the table. Uh, I'm talking about someone who is absolutely defiant uh, and is actually making a mockery of the body and causing dissension within the body of Christ. But Paul uh, says, uh, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord, uh, that you are in this person is there, you are delivered this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That by putting them out, they might realize the gravity of what they've done and be reconciled to the body. Now, why doesn't this work? Do you want to know why? Because of an invention. It was called the Model T. You get thrown out of the church in Corinth. Where are you going to go? Nowhere. You get thrown out of church at the Advent, you get in your car and you drive to IPC. You, you drive to some other church. I, I mean, really, uh, Carl Truman, the church historian, uh, caught me off guard one time when he said, well, what was the most significant date in the history of the church? And I thought, well, 33 AD is a pretty good one when Jesus died. <laughs> and he said, well, yes. And he said, but next to that, and I said, I don't know. And he said, it was the year the Model T was, was made because no longer were people 
living and worshiping and having an integrated life together as a community. And even when these articles were written, you lived in a village. You had a village church. And still today, if you go to a tiny village in England, there's one church. One church. And what I think is funny is you go there and you start talking to people, because I've preached in these churches, and after about five minutes of conversation, you realize this person's not really an Anglican. They're a Baptist. Or, and then you talk to their neighbor who's actually... Uh, a Presbyterian. You talk to their neighbor who's actually uh, a Methodist, but there's one church in the village and that's where everybody goes. And so they have to learn to sort it out with one another. We have the luxury of never sorting it out and by God's grace we're Southerners and we're never going to talk about it anyway. And so we kind of hope that if there is some sort of drama in the life of a congregation that it will simply blow over and we sort of chuckle to ourselves and we say, oh, that's just so-and-so being so-and-so when in fact, we actually have a responsibility to say, absolutely not. No. You can't behave this way. Not only are you causing disruption in the body, uh, but you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. There's a spiritual issue at stake with what you are doing. So I've never actually done the disciplinary rubrics in that I have uh, written the bishop a letter and said, I, you know, am going to excommunicate Lauren Pearson uh, from, the, from the table of the Lord, or anything uh, along those lines. And people may say, well, that's really harsh, and who are you to do that? But we actually do it every single Sunday, because we actually do say that there is at least a qualification for you to come forward to the table. And what is it? Yeah, a profession of belief in Jesus. Now, the canon reads, all baptized Christians, which means not just that you're baptized, but that you're putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you go to the 730 service, and the way the old service used to say it, just very briefly, was if you're a Christian and if you are in love and charity with your neighbor and intending to lead a new life following the commandments of God, draw near with faith and make your humble confession to Almighty God devoutly kneeling. And actually, draw near with faith and receive this sacrament to your great comfort. So already, even at the Advent, at least at 7.30, we do say, look, if you're going to come forward to the table, you need to believe in Jesus, and you need to be in love and charity with your neighbor. And even if you're not, if you happen to hate your neighbor at this moment, draw near with faith. At least ask forgiveness and, and try to live in love and charity with your neighbor, because that's God's call on uh, our lives. And, of course, out of that comes uh, these, uh, these sorts of things. Uh, look, I am definitely not in the business of being a spiritual fruit inspector. Right? I'm not going around looking at everybody's... Because there are some religious bodies that have tried to do this, and they burn people mightily. Burn people mightily. Because, look, if y'all took one look at my heart and mind, you'd never come hear me preach ever again. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. In fact, I mean, that, isn't that a frightening thing to be known thoroughly, through and through, that all desires known and from whom no secrets are hid? That's, that's a fright. I mean, maybe you feel pretty confident about it, but, but I don't particularly. So that's not what this is talking about. It is talking about the person who is running amok uh, in the body of the church, and the whole point of it is uh, reconciliation, which leads us to a favorite theme of the Advent, trying to figure out when you're dealing with someone like this, and you can even use the parallel of a, of a child or a coworker or anybody, 
who is our spouse, who's acting out, what is the most effective means to reconcile them? Now, for some people, they need to have the law applied. Something has to get their attention. You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about the difference between a high bottom and a low bottom. You know, for some of us, we have real high bottoms, and we get a speeding ticket, and our life is over. We become undone. We feel like the most miserable wretches, and we carry around the guilt. It doesn't take much to get our attention. Some of us, I've heard people go through some of the craziest things, and God still has not been able to get their attention. And it really is remarkable uh, to me. And so when you're dealing with somebody who has a very low bottom, like Romans 1 talks about, there is a sense in which you kind of have to hand them over to themselves, give them over to themselves, and to let God do its work because it may be that nothing you can say or do is going to convict them of their wrongdoing. And again, I'm not talking about judgment call. We have a difference of opinion because disagreement in the church is expected. What Paul and Jesus and, and John are saying, disagreement's fine, but how you disagree matters. How you express that disagreement, how you go about it, that matters uh, greatly and is the reason why, I think, or at least one of the reasons, why the church has such an awful reputation in the church. So with some people, you do need to lay down the law. Now, the careful thing about that is the last thing you want to do is to cast them out so that you never see them again. Now, there are people who will leave the Advent and have left the Advent that I love dearly. And I've even written letters to their new pastor saying, you're inheriting some really lovely and wonderful people. I've never written, although I've wanted to, you're inheriting a nightmare, uh, and, and you should... Uh, you should run as fast as you possibly can. You should act, it's so bad, you should quit your job and get out of there. Um, I've never written one of those, but there are times, I actually do have some uh, members' transfer forms pre-filled out. Uh, that's a joke, I don't have, have that uh, pre-filled out. Um, um, but you see, if, if, you, if they go running off, it actually really grieves me because if they leave, because of this a situation like this, the chances of reconciliation are pretty on, I mean, they're, they're almost zero, except God intervening, because they can get in their cars and they can go someplace else. So how, this is the question, how do you keep someone in the fold of the fellowship and yet not let their dysfunction tank the whole ship? Go. Stop them in their tracks. Well, we've thought of firearms, well, David. I mean, if it's if it's just if it's just verbal and not, I guess, you, well, it's verbal and behavior, but you don't accept it. You uh, confront them, as you say, as best you can, as individual members of the body. Yeah. And but at some point, they'll almost want to leave because no one will put up with them. Yeah, I think that that's one of the difficult things, especially in the South, when it comes to things like gossip and slander. Because we tend to listen to people, and even though we think that they are as crazy as all get out, we'll sort of smile and nod our heads and be like, oh, okay. Uh, when in fact, I think that God's calling us to say, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not true. Or 
Even if it is true, maybe you shouldn't be saying those things. Or have you talked to this individual that you're talking about? In fact, why don't I schedule a lunch for the three of us to get together? I mean, that'll stop them in their tracks, hopefully. Uh, but uh, there's a great reluctance amongst Southern Christians especially to say, wait a minute, that, that's not okay to speak of somebody that way uh, or to treat them that way. Uh, because the thing about it is, is that there are people out there who are going to sling a lot of mud and hope that just some of it sticks. And my experience is that some of it does stick. Sarah Jane. Well, I guess I'm going to say the hardest thing for any of us to do is to pray for Ann. Absolutely. That's the hardest thing to do. And it really is in God's hand. You know, you can correct, and I do think that we need corrections when we're going down the wrong path. Because the scripture says you bring all this junk on you. I mean, I can't quote it. But if you are walking in known sin, you, you're harming yourself. Right. And the hardest thing is uh, sometimes you want to pray they go to another church so you don't have to worry about them. But th that is, I mean, it's, it is the hardest thing, and I do encourage yeah. each of us to understand we got to pray. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right, is that leaving them to themselves, because there does come a point when you really have nothing else to do. God's office is at the end of our ropes. And so, um, you know, if you've ever had a wayward child or, or, or somebody in your life, I mean, you really do get to the point where you have no other recourse uh, but, uh, but to pray. We can't change ourselves, let's face it. That's right. If God didn't change us, we'd be walking down that muddy road. So I encourage all of us. Yeah, and that is an encouragement included. because sometimes we forget that the very God who got a hold of our lives, why wouldn't, we think that he, why wouldn't we think that he could get a hold of somebody else's life, even though it seems so far gone? And so there is almost a, a fearfulness that maybe... Maybe it is up to us and that God won't work. That's right. John Hooper. Andrew, I had a couple of things. Uh, one, can you please explain why the articles have it out for bartenders? I mean, I, what's a publican? A publican. But, but, but getting past that, the, the, the instance that that's just occurs to me and you know, altogether too common where this would seem to come up, is divorce yeah i mean it happens all the time and sure there are exceptions where you know the people get along and they're you know forgiving and respectful and and even friendly but boy that seems like the rare exception and it it seems like i mean that it, it would, would be yeah. hard pressed to find divorces that don't you know uh, don't run, run afoul of this yeah um so this is, this is something I, I deal with fairly often because divorce is so prevalent, and the church has absolutely blown it, absolutely blown it when it comes to helping uh, married folks and minister to them in their marriage. They really are given over to themselves. So some of the stuff that we're trying to do proactively at the Advent is for premarital counseling um, and beyond to not just have a member of the clergy do the premarital counseling, but to have a married couple within the congregation do the counseling. 
uh, and then after they're married, to actually assign them a mentoring couple. Not to say, and now I shall mentor you. But I mean, it would have been really helpful to me as I was pouring my heart out, being married for six months, for someone to say, yeah, that's normal. Right? And, and it, I, mean, I mean, just to sort of check me in that way uh, and, and to help me walk through it. And, because when you're struggling in your marriage, you feel so alone. You feel completely alone and that nobody else uh, can uh, understand where you're coming from. And not just that, the church becomes a place where you can't be honest about it. And, um, and, and I think in part is the church has not wanted to mess with this at all. And so when divorces happen, either leading up to it or in the aftermath, we've turned a blind eye. And I can tell you the Advent doesn't do that. Um, and that has distressed some people to no end, uh, whether we've said... We can't, we can't have your wedding uh, at the church, uh, but we're still going to stick with you and, and, and be with you uh, and, and do everything that we can, uh, but we just can't, we can't bless the marriage uh, to counseling people not to get married again, um, uh, to um, absolutely, uh, you know, there are times I've never, ever told a couple that they should get divorced. Uh, but that was mostly because of my just keeping my big mouth shut uh, because there was something really bad going on. Um, and, um, but um, um, and it, it's, it's a complicated matter. Uh, and in fact, that couple reconciled and they're doing really well. Um, so, yes, so that is one of those things. But if you have somebody in a congregation who, who has, is, you know, for some reason their marriage has ended and it's very public, on the one hand, um, how do you handle that on the front end, especially if they're sort of nonchalant and saying, it's my own business. What, is it, what does it matter to you? But on the other side of that, and there's the infamous story of Bishop Allison when Fitz was the rector of St. Uh, Grace Church in Manhattan, there was a woman who was part of a very public affair in the congregation. And some months went by, and she met with Fitz and said, I've totally blown it. I've totally blown it. I own up to it. I'm not trying to make anybody else the scapegoat. I really am responsible for it, and I repent, and I, I have to be part of my church family again. So Fitz prayed with her, and the next, that following Sunday, um, they had communion at Grace Church. And the woman's in the pew, and she gets up and goes to the rail. And after the service, almost the entire vestry was approaching Fitz. And one of the wardens, this is a great line, one of the wardens was saying, that woman went forward to the rail, and how, how dare she, and how dare you uh, serve her communion at the rail? And Fitz was so flabbergasted because he didn't want to violate the confidentiality of this woman, uh, said, said, well, good, I mean, even Jesus forgave the woman caught in the act of adultery, and one of the wardens said, and I don't think much of Jesus for doing that either. Um, so, I mean, there, there is a sense in which you, and I, and I, I've done this before. I basically put it on the individual. I'm saying to them, if you come to the table, it's going to be a problem. But I need you to know that if you're coming to the table, I'm going to assume that you feel reconciled or you've done what needs to be done in order to do that. Because the worst thing that you should ever do is to make this decision at the table. That's happened in history. John Wesley did it in Savannah, Georgia. He was in love with a woman in the congregation who, be, who became engaged to another man. And they came forward for communion, and he refused to give communion to the woman and the fiancé at the rail. 
He did not have a job the next day. He was ridden out of Savannah on a rail. And then went to preach in Beaufort, which is what everybody does. So. Oh, a publican? Uh, it's just a, a public center. Just a, somebody who is doing whatever they want to do. It's a good word, publican. Some people might say it's a typo when they left off RE. I don't know. Um, just kidding. Uh, but um, no, it, 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 it really is somebody who is, who is openly... Um, has no business doing that. I mean, there are extreme cases of this that have manifested itself in the life of a, chur- of a church, um, but thankfully I've never really had to deal with any of that. No, it's not the keeper of a public house. No, that would get the, pa- that would get the rector done with in the village because between the pub and the, and the, um, the, pub and the, uh, the church, those are the two pillars. Dan? I used to be the type person that I wanted to, when I would encounter a situation like this, it would be a, a mindset of one and done. We're going to get this person. We're going to get them corrected. I've got the answer. It was eye-opening to me. Don't know how it happened other than through the Spirit. When I decided or I started approaching it from the aspect of, Asking rhetorical questions just to try to get them to think and to not feel like I had to till the soil, water, and get the, the, right. um, the crop in that moment, but see it as something that would stretch over time. Yeah. And that really helped out in, in having multiple conversations with individuals. Yeah, I think Jesus gets to that. I mean, again, we're not the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department. You know, we're not, we're not here to execute justice, we really are approaching this person, as hard as it sounds, out of love. I mean, you think about Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, and in Mark's gospel, it says what? Remember the man who said, good sir, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, go and sell everything that you have, and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. What does Mark's gospel say, that, say about Jesus before he said what he said to the rich young ruler? He looked at him and loved him, and said, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. And the man went away sad. I mean, I'm still, I mean, when I read that, I'm still kind of hoping upon hope that Jesus says, all right, come back. We'll sort something out. We'll figure it out. And it was so dumbfounding to the disciples because they thought, wait a minute, if he doesn't get into heaven, who gets in? If he, then who could be saved? And Jesus says, I tell you that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not about wealth. It's about this man who... Um, had a possessiveness over his wealth, and until the law had done its work, his eyes would never be open to who Jesus really was. He was coming to Jesus on his terms. And so my hope is that God raised up people in his life uh, to walk alongside him. But it seems to me, too, that this rich young ruler had some ruminating to do about his own life. He went away sad, which means his whole outlook on life was being challenged. And so he had, and he went with really good intentions. We're not talking about some jerk uh, coming up, but someone who really wanted to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, but if you're coming to me, you're not going to come on your terms. So, well, it really is the question of how do we live together uh, as a family? Uh, because that's what the church is. Uh, we're, not, uh, we're not just a, a club, uh, but we're brothers and sisters. And so, brothers and sisters, go in uh, the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.